cynicism. You know, cynicism is the worst enemy of the work of God. When it gets into the church, it's like people within who their attitude is wrong and uh, they're believing the worst, you know, and they are disillusioned and they're living in their disillusionment and it's just destructive. And, and, and all of us can be like that. We just have to guard against it. We, mm -hmm. we, we really do. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. My name is Jake, and I am here joined by my esteemed co-host, David Campbell. And this episode is brought to you today by our sponsor, Dwell Bible. Dwell Bible's mission since 2018, when it started, has been to help Christians rediscover the ancient practice of listening to Scripture through their beautiful digital experience. Dwell offers more than 20 handpicked voices across 11 translations, and now Dwell has built a platform to help pastors and leaders. So if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, this is specifically for you. The platform is to help keep the people of your church rooted in God's word every day, and you can invite them to use the tools that Dwell has built, uh, which are customizable and super easy to use. And the goal here is very simple. We want to help your church reflect upon the scriptures not just by reading them, but also by listening to them. And this is an incredibly useful way to engage with God's word. Dwell offers a 30-day trial on all new accounts. So if you're interested in that, you can get started by going to dwellbible.com slash good, or you can text the word good to 39383. Again, that's dwellbible.com slash good, or you can text the word good to 39383. I just want to encourage you, try it out for yourself. Download the app. Super easy. It's free in the App Store. And try listening to Scripture. It is a very enriching experience. Cannot recommend it enough. Well, today we've got a lot to cover in this episode. We're going to talk about Chapter 7 of our book on the Incarnation of God, written by John C. Clarke and Marcus Peter Johnson. Been loving those discussions. We'll get to that later on. Uh, we're going to continue our How to Read the Bible in 2023. We'll do two more of those. And then I got a couple of things that I want to throw at David. Here's my opening question, David, something that I was thinking about earlier today, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, that connects to a lot of our discussion on the Trinity um, and the Incarnation and how those two uh, interrelate. So one of the things that we talked about several epi episodes ago was God's qualities and how uh, God always does who he is, and his qualities are um, – they're eternal, uh, and they're always experienced in their fullness. So we talked about the fact the Bible says God is love, God is holy, so on and so forth. Here's a question that I had that is probably a ridiculous question, and I'm sure it has a very simple answer, um, but to me it seemed worth discussing. Is it possible that God experienced emotions or feelings, for lack of a better term, in a new sense through the incarnation of Jesus? Like, for example, and I was thinking about this when it came to the qualities conversation, you know, there are some things that God has, he's always been like love, like holy but were there were there things that God experienced in a new way through the incarnation of Jesus, such as 
compassion, for example. So when God the Father had compassion on the Son throughout his experience, was God experiencing compassion in an intrinsic way that was novel to the compassion that he's, you know, had for humanity since humanity's creation? Like, how can you have compassion? Let's let's say like we're God in eternity, right? Before creation. And to me, compassion seems like one of those emotions or feelings that is, it's dependent upon encountering somebody who is in need of compassion or in need of pity. And yet God, he's never been in need of compassion or in need of pity. So I guess you couldn't say that God experienced compassion before time began. But then when Jesus became incarnate and he's connected to the life of God, um, he's fully God, he's fully man, and the father has compassion on the son. Is he experiencing compassion there in some kind of novel sense? Does that make sense? Well, in in a way, but I think you're looking at God through a human lens because God is not restricted or limited by time and space the way that we are. And so uh, God's experience extends uh, um, uh, regardless, let me put it this way, regardless of whether, uh, regardless of the fact that God undeniably existed before he created, um, he was not limited by time and space and the totality of everything that ever happened in terms of creation existed mm-hmm. to God before the creation physically existed anyway. So I think to say that, uh, you know, in the same way that before the foundation of the world, before the universe was created, um, uh, uh, God foreknew us, he predestined us, he, you know, he um, uh, just called us, justified us, and glorified us, according to Romans 8, 29 and 30. He did that all before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, even the sufferings of Christ on the cross were present to God before the foundation of the world. So, I think that's the short answer to your question. There can't be anything novel to God, or else he isn't God. Right. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, that's that's the answer that I had a feeling you were going to give, that it's uh, it, it, it's a little bit above our, our pay grade, I suppose, to even consider these things um, because our brain breaks when it comes to trying to think outside of space and time. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a thought that popped into my brain. Well, it, does, uh, it, doesn't, mean that, it doesn't mean that we can't talk about it. I mean, it... it you know, there are things that we do understand. We can understand as much as I think I, I've said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can understand certain things about the nature of God or about the Trinity, on, for instance, on the basis of what he's revealed to us. Uh, but obviously our knowledge is not exhaustive and comprehensive. But we can have true knowledge. We just can't have comprehensive knowledge of things like that. Yeah, well, I even found myself wondering about it um, several weeks ago, uh, back, back in December when I was considering the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when I think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if love, joy, peace, so, so far, so good. Like I could, I can see those qualities being 
accurate as an eternal description of an eternal God. But then you get to patience. And then I started to think, well, the triune God never tries his own patience. (laughs) The Father never does anything to the Son or the Holy Spirit and vice versa that would make one another have to reckon with impatience. So, and I know I'm I'm pressing the text to say more than it's saying. It says that God is patient, you know, and, and so it is a quality of God, even if he only has to be patient with us. Right. And so it's one of those things where I guess it comes back to the space-time subject, because the wrong way to think about it would then to be go, okay, so God learned patience once he created us, or God learned compassion once he created us. But God is, he, he doesn't learn anything. He is, he's infinite and eternal and, and complete. Um, but it's one of those things that kind of makes your brain break a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I'm just being cute. Well, I won't comment on that. But <laughs> Okay. So um, let's do this. I want to talk to you about this tweet thread that got shared with me from a uh, a man who calls himself a pastor. And uh, he's got pronouns in his Twitter bio, so there's that. That's always a uh, it's always a little red flag for me. Um, but Nonetheless, I want to engage with this tweet, this tweet thread. Um, and he's a doctor. So, you know, there's an, there's a, an air of authority there. He presents himself as a doctor, um, a PhD. And this tweet is about how he became LGBTQ plus affirming without sacrificing the authority of the Bible. And then he goes on a... How many? Four, I think. Four tweets. Uh, So number one, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis uh, 19. He says, no one in the story is gay. This is ancient gang rape for power and domination. Bible never says the sin was homosexuality. Ezekiel 16 and Jesus say that the sin was pride and inhospitality. So he's saying that he you know, based upon this scripture and others that you can be LGBTQ affirming, meaning that there's nothing morally wrong in that, that lifestyle um, and still uphold the authority of the Bible. Because actually the Bible doesn't say in this particular instance that homosexuality and the related activity is wrong. Well, you know, um, First of all, I don't think it was it was Jesus that made a comment about that, um, unless you're alluding to where he says it will be uh, um, better for so- Sodom and Gomorrah than for. Uh, I think it's stretching it. I mean, um, and Ezekiel talks about uh, the issue of wealth or pride. I can't remember exactly which, which is correct. However, uh, 
the fact is that um, something did happen, which was wrong. And uh, uh, it's clear that that what happened was part of the condemnation, the judgment of God. And uh, I, I think that uh, to arbitrarily, you know, to, uh, in an arbitrary way to redefine it as gang rape, uh, well, it was gang rape, but to define that in terms of a power issue and take the sexual part of it out is arbitrary, to put it mildly. I I don't know what justification he would have for doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it begs the question of what about the other parts of the Old Testament that clearly prohibit um, homosexual practice. Because, well, he's going to get to that next. Well, then get to it. Okay. So I just want to comment, though, briefly, that I, it is worth pointing out that him pegging the activity... <laughs> wrong word. Him... <laughs> Him saying that the activity is uh, in connection to power and domination uh, seems to be a, a very postmodern reading right. of the text. Well, it's a very postmodern thing. It's yeah. he, and that's a good point. I mean, he's he's applying uh, critical theory, critical race theory, um, and uh, you know. Uh, framework to the biblical account and I don't think that it takes anyone with a brain can figure out that that's not a legitimate way of handling an ancient text mm-hmm. even if you're not a believer so I mean, even if not you know even if you're not a Christian or a believing Jew but you're looking at an ancient text that is not a legitimate way of interpreting it by imposing um, you know, categories that are popular in 2023, mm-hmm. um, but have not existed largely, you know, before about 1980 or 1990. Um, so that's a pretty weak, and it, and it guts uh, the heart of the text, I think. What do you think the heart of the text is? Well, the, the heart of the text is... It, the New Testament uh, talks about uh, God rescuing Lot because he was appalled at their ungodly conduct. Mm-hmm. Well, that obviously was representative of their ungodly conduct. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think uh, you can look at it any other way. Um, and you get the same thing in the case of the... Um, priest with the concubine that stops at Gibeah and uh, the men come out and want to um, sexually assault the guy and uh, you know in in the end it's the concubine that gets gang raped Um, so uh, you know that and, and the judgment of God comes upon them well, it's interesting, right? Even in the story, Lot 
goes outside to meet these men of Sodom and Gomorrah who are banging on his door. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them right. out to you and you can do what you like with them. Now, that right. in and of the itself. Same, we- the same thing happens in the story of the concubine. Right. Which which is just where my brain was going. Same place yours was. That It doesn't that, seem like gang rape was the sin in question. That Well, I mean. Uh, not to it, say that that's not, not uh, that endorsing the gang rape. Right. But it was especially heinous that it was homosexual homosexual in nature. And so I think a careful reading of both of those texts makes that clear. That's before you even get to the other parts of the Old Testament that place that in context. Right. Yes. It it does seem like that's there. So Leviticus is the next one, he says. uh, Leviticus Leviticus 18, 22, and 20, and verse 13, um, which we can read. He says this, that uh, Leviticus equals a manual for ancient priests, not us. Therefore, it's not binding. Uh, The Hebrew word, which I won't even try to pronounce, uh, abomination, is not equal to sin or wrong or evil. Rather, it is equal to crossing cultural mores, uh, a.k.a. taboo. There are two different words for male used. So it is about sex for power and domination. No mention of LGBTQ. What what was the uh, exact text in Leviticus eighteen? Yep, and verse twenty-two. We'll start there. Well, uh, the text reads: "You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination." Um, I I mean I don't have the Hebrew text in front of me, uh, so. Uh, the normal word for man is ish and woman is isha. And I don't know whether that's the word or whether there's a more specific word involved that indicates male as opposed to female. So I can't comment on that uh, off the top of my head. Um, But um, it's an abomination is, you know, uh, it's a violation of the law. For instance, the, the, in the previous verse, it talks about offering your children to Moloch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the subsequent verse, it talks about lying with an animal mm-hmm. uh, as being a perversion. And so all those things are described as perversions or abominations. Um, and the text is pretty clear. You just have to take it at face value um, uh, as to what it means. I don't think there can be any dispute about that. Now, uh, the 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 bigger question that he then raises is well this is a manual for priests well what does he mean by that well this is the law as given to Moses it was the law of of the nation mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, um, suggesting it was a manual for priests is a kind of a peculiar way of putting it as if it was um, regulating uh, cultic activities or activities that were going on in a temple area or something like that right. Um, that's not what it was. It was the law of the land. This right. was civil law because yeah, God's law was ca- civil law. And um, uh, to call it that is is to imply that this was only applicable. These were laws that were only uh, applicable for for the priestly uh, class in in Israel. Well, uh, you know, he doesn't really flesh out, so to speak, what he means. What, what he means. Right. Um, 
And, you know, you throw out these phrases and, and people that, you know, are gullible say, oh, oh, but right. they don't understand what he means. So I think, well, what do you mean? You know, because, um, no, that was the civil law. That was the law of the land. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it, it, and, and, and above and beyond that, uh, Jesus did not come to institute any l- new law. Uh, Jesus endorsed the laws given to Moses. Uh, he, he, it's just that sacrifice, uh, you know, the, the sacrificial and ceremonial aspects of the law were foreshadowing the coming of Christ on the cross. And so once Christ dies on the cross, we enter the covenant through his blood, not the blood of animals. And so that part of the law is concluded, which Hebrews chapter 7 through 11 teaches very clearly. But the rest of the law is still valid. Jesus said, you should, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You should love, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul talks about the commandments of the law being um, uh, like a, a, a debt that we owe that we'll never completely repay because we, we can never completely fulfill the law in Romans 13. And in, in Romans 8, he talks about the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. So um, people seem to think that Jesus threw the whole morality of the Old Testament out and created some new morality, but then nobody's ever been able to define what that new morality is other than putting a blanket love. of love on it. But the problem is love is love that in Romans 13, it says every commandment of the law is summed up in the command to love. So the reason that you don't move your neighbor's boundary stone or the reason that you have honest weights is expression of love, love to your neighbor. So it's, you, you know, God specifies what love looks like Mm -hmm. and, um, and what love doesn't look like. And so contained within that uh, are uh, limitations on sexual activity. And, uh, and that definitely carries over into the New Testament because it's as clear as a bell in Romans chapter 1 uh, where God, God, I mean, it's fair to say that God does not condemn people, people who are what we would call same-sex attracted, uh, are accept if they accept Christ, they're accepted by God much as anybody else. It's just that they're in a place where where they mustn't uh, act out um, their um, sexual inclination because that would be sinful. That would be wrong. It would be a violation. And you know, we can argue till the cows come home as to. You know, that seems to be very unfair and unreasonable and unloving and all the rest of it. But your argument is with God because that's what he said. And God has a reason for for saying that. So that's a whole nother debate. But the the uh, what this guy is, is it, basically he's trying to, um, you know, he's trying to change the meaning of the text and import stuff into it from our modern context that doesn't exist in the text. Now, you can say you disagree with the Bible, but you Mm -hmm. can't change and fiddle around with the meaning of what the text actually says. You have to deal with it and say, all right, I accept it or I reject it. But what's illegitimate 
is to go back and try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what this guy is, is trying to do. I mean, if the, Bible, if the Bible didn't say we weren't supposed to call people idiots, I might even call him an idiot. <laughs> well, it's very interesting, right? Like he, so he says that um, th- th- this, is all, this is about uh, power and domination. Again, so it's that same, same reading in. And, and it's not that the Bible doesn't speak to that. I mean, the Bible absolutely has things to say about our relationships with others and, and, and oppression. Certainly. Um, he's, he's getting that in, in the Leviticus 20 and verse 13 uh, verse. He's saying there's two different words used for man. If a man has sexual relations with, with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, Right. This is interesting. If that were about power and domination, you would think that only one of them would be in the wrong. The oppressor would be in the wrong, and the oppressed would be cleared. Right. I mean, they've right. they've been wronged. So why are they being held accountable for their sin? You, you, if indeed no, there is no, none, it, it, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, the first, uh, I've got my uh, logos put up here. The first. Hebrew word for man there is, I don't know how you pronounce it. East well, is. Is that 20 verse 12? Uh, it's 20 verse 13. Okay, just a minute. I'll, these days you can even Google these things. Uh, and then uh, the second word is zakar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We shall bear Yiskav a Zakar. Mishkaveisha Toeva Ashu Shenehim. Moth, that's dead. Or no, that's sorry, surely. Yumathu Demehim Bomb. That's the, that's how you read it in Hebrew. Uh, so this is the word zakar. Yes, the normal word is ish, a man. Uh, and I I would think uh, I would think that he's specifying because because uh, ish can be generic. I think. Uh, and can uh, he, he wants to specify? Um, you know how we used to say it's like the Greek word anthropos for man. Um, uh, and if a man did that, yeah, it actually means if a person did that. And now we specify. Well, yeah, it, sa- it says here can either be man, husband, or human being. Right. Exactly. That's my point. And so, mm-hmm. um, so he uses. A word, a, 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 the word zakar, which would be, a, a, you know, a much less used word in the Old Testament, but which defines the person as male, and he he does it to make his point because because otherwise it could mean if a person lies with a person, technically, right, right. Uh, so that's, irrespective of that, the entire argument collapses when both of them are being held accountable, right. 
exactly. It's just a moot point. It's obviously something that's wrong. Yeah. So, like I said, Jake, I mean, it's it's one thing for liberal theologians for years to have looked at the biblical text and said, well, I think that's ridiculous. I don't agree with it. Right. And one thing. But what is objectionable is people that try to redefine the text to mean something that it doesn't. Right. And of course, the, the whole purpose of that was stated in in his preamble, which is, uh, well, I found a way of uh, affirming LGBTQ conduct and behavior and sexual practice and so on, and affirming the Bible at the same time. Right. Because he's a hypocrite. Um, why don't you just get up in your pulpit and say, I've stopped believing the Bible? Well, he doesn't want to do that because guess what? Some people might leave his church. So he's trying to kind of break it to them nicely and say, no, I'm fine. You know, I still believe the Bible. Just don't worry about that. This is just a minor detail and, and, uh, et cetera. And that, I think there's, there's a total lack of integrity in that. I think the man should just say, I've, I've lost my faith. I don't believe in the Bible anymore. I don't believe in the, uh, in the historic message of the Christian gospel. Uh, I've switched over to a kind of a new age, generic, Oprah or whatever type. <laughs> My wife says I can't bring Oprah into it because she's about the same as I am. I just saw that because she's having a big party in Los Angeles, uh, where oh, all the you know all the beautiful people like you and Oprah and I'll so be, on. I'll be looking out for my invitation. Yeah, well, apparently Prince Harry didn't get invited, so the way out just as well. But and we won't we don't want to go down that bunny trail. Okay, but anyway, so uh, num- number three. Abandoned natural relations, question mark, Romans 1, 26 and 27. Yep. So about hetero, idol slash temple sex is what this is about. No. Paul, Paul quotes Jewish critiques of Gentiles exposing prejudice. Romans 2, 1 reverses Romans 1 with a vo- vocative. Well, Paul calls hetero, vocative? With, Paul calls hetero acts, quote, shameful, not evil. The same word he used for men with long hair, 1 Corinthians 11. Oh dear! <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. So, in Romans chapter, for just to make it clear, Romans one verse eighteen to thirty-two contains God's judgment on the Gentiles, on the pagan nations. Romans two verse one uh, and following, the rest of Romans, uh, Romans two verse one all the way to Romans three verse twenty, uh, contains God's judgment on the Jew. Right. So when he says in Romans 2, he's condemned Gentile conduct and homosexual practices are an example of the kind of thing that brings brings the pagan nations under the judgment of God. And then in Romans 2, he says, you have no excuse, O man. Oh, this is he, in context, he's talking about the Jewish man. Right. He's saying you um, are passing judgment on them, but actually you aren't obeying the law yourself. Uh, and I mean, every single commentator, I wrote PhD thesis on Romans, every single commentator on Romans chapter two will tell you the same thing. The person he's talking about there, he's contrasting the Jewish legalist, self-righteous Jewish legalist of chapters two and three mm-hmm. with the Gentiles of chapter one. And the conclusion in 320 is that everyone stands under judgment. What does he mean with, when he says Romans 2, 1 reverses Romans 1 with a vocative? Well, the vocative is simply 
it's it's the case in Greek or in Latin that of of address. It's so if I say Jake, uh, then that I'm addressing you in the vocative. Except English doesn't really have cases in that same way. But mm-hmm. the form of the Greek word changes slightly. So if I said Jake does something, uh, that it would be spelled a certain way. Mm-hmm. If I said I will give the ball to Jake, Jake would then be spelled a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. If I said uh, I hit Jake, it would be a different way again. And if I said Oh Jake, it would be a different way again. That's the vocative is the Oh Jake part, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now the fact that it's in the vocative simply means he's addressing uh, whoever he's addressing in chapter two, verse one. That doesn't that doesn't have any bearing on the on the chapter one going on in the text whatsoever it's a grammatical so that makes me think that probably this this guy doesn't understand what the vocative case is because he probably doesn't know a word of greek anyway um and in terms of the text uh chapter two uh doesn't far from reversing the judgment of chapter one uh the content of chapter two Paul's point is that the wicked and the evil that is being done by the Gentiles, as recorded in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is is also being done by the self-righteous legalistic Pharisees in chapter 2. So Mm -hmm. it actually reinforces chapter 1. It doesn't reverse it. It reinforces it by saying the things that you accuse them of doing, you're doing the same. Right. And it's all an abomination to God. And because of that, because of all your evil practices, um, it, everyone falls under the judgment of God. Those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Those who are outside the law will perish outside the law. No one is justified by, by their own actions. So that's, that is the biggest load of twaddle that I've heard in a long time. Well, it's highly reductionistic, even his point about how Paul calls uh, these acts as shameful instead of evil. Uh, it's, and then saying that he uses the same word in 1 Corinthians about men having long hair. It to, it, even if it is the same word, it doesn't matter. Like Words can be used for, for different contexts, and you have to draw the meaning of the word based upon the context it's being used in. And Paul says it here very clearly. Don't forget in the 1 Corinthians text that the thinking is there that the women with shaved heads are are, are taking on the appearance of a prostitute. Uh, and so that's why he uses the word disgraceful, uh, because there's a background of you're, you're making yourself look like a prostitute. So it actually, it, there's a reason why he uses that word, and it is a strong word. Right. Uh, well— and on top of that, he's – I mean, it's its not as if he just uses the word – like it's not as if you can read Romans 1 and, and walk away going, oh, Paul just thinks it's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> but God gave them over to shameful lust, even though women exchanged yep. natural sex relations for unnatural ones. Yep. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this has got a penalty attached for it, and it's also called error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do so that they do what ought not to be done. 
They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. So he's using all of these words to describe the lost condition of people who don't know God, which is all of us. We're all, all, we were all in that boat. And it's, it's not as though, you know, uh, sexual sin is, is, is extra. Uh, I want to be, it's, it's not as though that makes us like extra evil. We all have our own sin. We're all, we're all sinful, but you can't just like gloss over that by saying, well, Paul just thinks it's, you know, it's shameful, but that doesn't mean that it's sinful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. So I I think that uh, I I think this is the kind of approach you know to the Bible uh, that says okay um, we've come up with it we really don't agree with what the Bible says but we don't want to admit it therefore we're going to do ver- verbal contortions and invent stuff out of thin air to you know, throw enough dust in the air that people get confused by our big words and uh, walk out, walk away and say, okay, well, maybe they're right. But actually, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. And and I dare say Paul would have described it as this kind of interpretation of the Bible as an example of a depraved mind. Right. And I think people like this are wolves, you know, they're not pastors, they're not shepherds, they're wolves that have come in to destroy the church. You tell me any church or any movement where this kind of stuff has come in that even exists 20 years later. Right. Because it doesn't. It's destroyed. <laughs> you show me any movement or any church that has been founded by people uh, who believe this kind of thing. They've never founded anything. All they've done is take what godly people have founded and destroy it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes me angry. So- Last one, and then we'll end, we'll end it with a, with a good little chuckle. Uh, so he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. And then he goes on to list other sins as well. Uh, and so he says that Paul avoids first century words for gay sex, instead creating a word, which from memory is what arsenokoitus, I believe mm-hmm. it is the, the joining of those two words in Leviticus and the Septuagint, creating a word to describe religious sex rituals and or morally weak exploitative sex for sale. So there's more of that power domination thing going on. As written, neither text and the other text he has listed here is First Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Neither text can refer to loving monogamous same sex relationships. But as I understand it, Paul hasn't, as he said, has invented a word here that's not otherwise used. And it is the joining of the two words that are in the Septuagint of Leviticus, I believe in one of the verses that we read earlier. Um, and the Greek form of those, he's, he's put together to form one word here in this, right. this passage. Yeah, the, the, and where he's got it from is Leviticus chapter. It, the text that you quoted earlier in Leviticus, mm-hmm. um, where if you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, you'll get the arsenokoite, that you'll you'll get the two parts: the word for man and the word for bed. And so Paul uh, is making a legitimate allusion to the Leviticus text. He's quoting 
essentially paraphrasing the text of Leviticus. So that's why he uses this word. He may have coined it himself, um, but he didn't pull it out of thin air. It didn't have some special frame of reference. He was tying it in directly to the condemnation of homosexual activity in the Torah, in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. Uh, and so what he wants to do is, um, you know, w- what he wants to do is uh, uh, link uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament text. Right. And and once again, let's just point out, like, so it's situated there amongst sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, as three other things that Paul lists in that that verse. And none of those have to do with some kind of postmodern like understanding of oppressed and oppressor uh, positions. Nothing else so far in the text is about power and domination. It's just right. about it's just about the inherent sinful nature of man and the things that we give ourselves over to. Yep. So it's disingenuous to all of a sudden read into it that this is about some exploitative uh, uh, behavior going on. It it's just not. Yep. And you have to read that in to to see that. Yep. So then he goes on, and this is, this closes it out. He says, "Here's a common rebuttal. Quote: Even if we accept all that as accurate, which we don't." Jesus still never affirmed homosexuality. And I'd just like to say that that's probably not the rebuttal most people would go with. Like, that's a total straw man of an argument. Like, no one's going to read all that, disagree with it, and go, well, it's because Jesus never affirmed homosexuality. Uh, There are lots of other arguments that you would point to, like the overarching biblical narrative in regards to a man and a woman being made in the image of God. But you know, that's neither here nor there. But let's just say we make that argument. Jesus still never affirmed homosexuality. Well, turns out that's just a carrot. Not so fast, dot, dot, dot. Jesus likely, all caps, did affirm LGBTQ+, and the story has been hiding in plain sight. And for a few days, I'm sending it free to all my new subscribers. Well, there you go. <laughs> So it turns out the whole thing was just a a bait to get you to sign up for his Substack. Yep. Well, <laughs> I I don't I think I'll take a pass on that. Are you sure? It sounds like we could learn a lot. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, there you have it, folks. It's always good to look at some of those things because those uh those those go viral on on the internets, and it's good to talk about them. Um, okay. Very good. So speaking of reading the Bible, well, let's continue our, um, let's continue our, how to read the Bible in 2023 segment. So I want to read just a verse from Galatians chapter five and verse one. Paul says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. One more time. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Yep. 
okay, you read this verse, you've heard it before. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. What do I do with that? How do I go deeper? Well, um, he, in Galatia, he's fighting legalism. And legalism is, is uh, you know, it's an awful thing because legalism is the claim that by doing certain things, I can earn my righteousness, status, I can earn a status of righteousness before God. So automatically, legalism downgrades the commandments of God, which uh, none, none of which we can f- fulfill properly and fully in this life. So it automatically reduces the standards of God to a level that I can say, yeah, I've done it. Uh, and, and that's what the attitude that Jesus attacks in the Sermon on the Mountain exposes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it separates us from the grace of God because a legalist says, I don't need the grace of God. Uh, I can earn my own salvation. And that, that puts you outside of the reach of the gospel. And that's why uh, it takes away and destroys the freedom that we have in Christ, who set us free from that curse. So, you know, Paul's making a real stand on this topic, on this subject, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Which uh, he spent the first four chapters of Galatians talking about. So everything that you just said in terms of Paul's combat with legalism has is the context in which this letter or this statement rather this verse is situated given yep. the, the reading of the whole letter so what then might we uh say about freedom it is for freedom that Christ has set us free so has has Christ just set me free for freedom's sake like just what Jesus is just like a freedom lover like a good old red-blooded American, or what? What's going on here? Uh, I'm still I'm being naughty here, and I'm looking up the man that I'm still annoyed at that. <laughs> you want to go back to him? No, I don't particularly. But he's put here's an interesting thing. He's put up something on his post. What other people say about me? First thing is integrity, a hundred percent. Uh huh. Now, that's a little bit of legalism, isn't it? Imagine if if you and I had a little post here on vast faith and said, Jake and David, uh, this is what people are saying about us. Integrity, 100%. Wow. Here's another one. Self-deprecation, 100%. We are 100% modest and 100%, gee, that's that's just, now mind you, he only gives himself an 80% for media and graphic design. That's a bit weird. What? Is this on his website? Yeah, it's on It's on his uh, – <laughs> anyway. Is this, what, talk, this he, is what you've been looking at this whole time? I've been talking to you about Galatians 5 and verse 1. He describes himself as um, – he graduated from Portland Seminary. I've never heard of that. But anyway, he, 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 he um, describes himself as post-evangelical and reconstructing his – faith so i think it's pretty sad really uh did you go to his website he's i've looked at his website but i'm not going to say what it is because i don't want anybody listening to us look it up and be kind of led astray so 
anyway. Style, 65%. I know. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> he admits that he's only two-thirds there on style. But his integrity, man, that's 100%. So there you go. Uh, we're we're going to... We're going to get a, a couple of people that, that really like us, um, prefer, but not our wives because they'd be more honest and say, man, those guys are 100% integrity. They're, they're just 100% modest and humble and, you know, and 100% stupid. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh... Yeah, I could. I mean, now now I'm going down the rabbit hole. Dude, here, I the, Why did you do this to me? Pray. Anyway, back to Galatians five verse one. That's how I read it. That, like, I so just, yeah, but I was just talking to a young man last night in a young men's meeting, um, and uh, he came out of the Amish a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and we were talking about you know on the surface the rules you've got to do this this and this if you want to appear to be um you know religiously right and so on but underneath all of that is a whole load of trouble you know because where people are self-righteous on the outside they're often not righteous on the inside and so you just get a lot of that happening in amish communities unfortunately uh, and so Paul says, no, you know, I, self-righteousness will kill any move of God. And, uh, if we want to maintain our freedom in Christ and our relationship with Christ, you've got to stand fast in the liberty that by which Christ has set you free, which is that we acknowledge that we're sinners saved by the grace of God. And we daily live by his grace and none of us can ever profess to be anywhere near earning any brownie points with God. Amen. So when I'm reading this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I I have to pause and I can't I can't just import my definition of what I think freedom is into that. So I've in order to understand what Paul's saying here, I've got to uh zoom out and I'm reminded of I think it was um Man, what was the name of that book? I can't remember. But one of the pieces of wisdom in it was never read a Bible verse. Always always zoom out and try to read everything in its context. So yeah, in order to... Un- pretext. But I mean, I wrote a whole book. The, the last book I wrote was on freedom. That was the subject of my doctoral thesis. Mm-hmm. So Paul actually has quite a bit to, to, to tell us in his letters about what freedom is. Um, so, you know, it's for instance, it's freedom from the condemnation of the law. It's freedom from legalism. It's freedom from the power of sin. It isn't freedom to be sinless, but it's freedom from the power of sin. It's Mm -hmm. freedom from death. Mm -hmm. It's freedom from those things, but it's freedom for things. It's freedom to be a slave to God. It's freedom Mm -hmm. to be righteous, to be, or I'm sorry, it's freedom to, to live and to act in accordance with God's righteous law. It's freedom you know, to obey God in our lives. It's freedom to lay our lives down and to love people and to be servants and to follow in the way of the cross. So he has a lot to say about, about freedom. It's, it's a really important topic for Paul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, so when he just says for freedom, Christ has set us free, he doesn't mean 
oh, now that I'm a Christian, I don't have to obey any law or do what anyone tells me to do. I can just live a completely self-centered life. No, it's freedom from the power of sin and death, and it's freedom to be able to serve and lay my life down for Christ. That's what mm -hmm. he means by yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, you, so you're going to get that if you keep reading and you, you, in that same chapter, get down to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So now I'm starting to get a sense of what Paul means by freedom. Like you were saying, it's not just freed from, it's freed for. And the for here is a life of service to those in the church, um, not just to do what I want to do. Um, and so then Paul goes on going back to verse one, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So how do I uncover what Paul means by a yoke of slavery? Well, the yoke of slavery is going back to a life of legalism and self-righteousness in context in, in Galatia, because mm -hmm. the people that he was dealing with in, in Galatia were the people that were, were trying to reinstitute legalism. You know, they were basically trying to kind of marry uh, Phariseeism and Christianity, which mm -hmm. is obviously impossible. So really what they were trying to do is to gut the heart of the gospel and to bring people back to Judaism, mm -hmm. Pharisaical Judaism. So I can't just like make up my own definition of what slavery is. I have to, I have to find out what Paul means. Yeah. And you, you can, a good definition is found in Romans chapter six, where he talks about slavery to sin and what that involves. Elsewhere in Galatians, he talked about uh, slavery to the elements of the world. It comes in mm -hmm. Colossians as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, what's a good principle for that? There, right? So, like, how often how how often am I going to be on safe ground to refer to one of let's say we're you know we're doing Paul to refer to one of Paul's other works to help me define one of his terms? Well. That's that's where, you know, it, it's the job of the Bible teacher, the pastor who's teaching, to be able to put these things in context and explain what they mean. Um, but I, I don't think you need a degree in theology to figure out the meaning of freedom. Uh, I mean, it helps to have some good Bible teaching, but anyone who's read their Bible uh, consistently can understand that freedom is freedom from certain things and freedom for certain things. Mm -hmm. By the way, the title of my book is Exodus, in case anyone wants to buy it. That's my, you know, money changing in the temple moment. But it's a <laughs> and, you know, you'd be surprised the fundamental category because all that Paul says about marriage and, uh, um, for instance, uh, and our relationship to government, uh, our relationship to church authority, uh, those things all hinge on his understanding and definition of freedom. So it's quite a, um, important thing to understand you mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he takes those principles of freedom from and freedom for, and then he applies them to these various areas. And I wrote a, you know, kind of a dangerous chapter at the end on the pandemic where of course 
you know, our freedoms, quote unquote, were infringed upon. And mm -hmm. how would how would Paul have addressed that if he was preaching today? You know, it's an interesting. I that's what I try to do. I try mm -hmm. to give an accurate interpretation of what how Paul would have addressed it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, the freedom he has in view here is definitely not a political freedom that that we often have in view. Right. Funda fundamentally, yeah. As, yeah. as Christians, we view freedom differently. Freedom is not centered on the idea of I want to maximize my rights. Mm -hmm. Freedom is the right to give my, to lay my life down for God mm -hmm. and for others. As soon as you establish that, then it clashes with the secular concept of freedom mm -hmm. as being maximizing my rights. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, often at the expense of other people's rights. Yep. And that cuts, uh, that cuts both ways up and down it the political, political spectrum. Yep. Um, yeah, so I think as a principle, it's good to it's good to understand, say, Paul's terminology by reading widely across his body of work, so that you can understand what does conceptually Paul mean when he says something like freedom or a yoke of slavery, and then also I might try to narrow my study into the book itself in which I'm reading, and maybe Paul means something more specific here in Galatians, uh, when he's using that terminology, maybe he doesn't, maybe it just is right in line with his general thought around that topic, but potentially maybe he means something specific. Um, and so I, th I think that that's a good thing for people to have in mind when they're reading is I can find the context in just this book. Um, but I can also try to find some larger context in this author's thought as well. Would you say that that's a pretty safe move? Yep. Cool. Okay, let's move on. Um, we're going to close up by talking about chapter seven. So we only have chapter seven and eight. Uh, so today is going to be about um, the church and the sacraments and what that has to do with the incarnation of Christ. And then next week, we'll close it out with uh, what the incarnation has to say about things like marriage and sex. Really looking forward to that. Um, but for today... Uh, Essentially, their kind of their key idea that they're getting across in this chapter is that um, whenever we divide the work of Christ from the person of Christ, that always has ramifications into every other area of our theology. So that affects our soteriology, which we've talked a lot about uh, as we've been going through this book, uh, but it also affects our ecclesiology, our our study of the church. Um. So, uh, in fact, they say that our understanding of the nature of the church is more or less a direct reflection of our understanding of the nature of salvation. In other words, to speak explicitly about salvation is to speak implicitly about the church. You can't talk about being saved without also talking about the church in the same breath. And the reverse is true. To speak explicitly about the church is to speak implicitly about salvation. So what do you what do you make of 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 what they're saying there? Because I could see maybe somebody who's, you know, justification by faith, that's how I'm saved. I could see them kind of like turning their nose up at that and going, "Well, hang on. How how could my salvation have anything to do with some kind of 
connection to my my work in the church or my faithfulness in that area. So what do you make of what they're saying? Um, he's making the point or they're making the point that uh, when we're saved, we are joined to a body. I think any of us that have read the Bible at all, especially, for instance, 1 Corinthians tw- chapter 12, realize that Paul compares uh, us to the body of Christ, uh, which is what separates out the church from every other institution, human institution that has ever existed or ever will exist, mm-hmm. because it is part of God. And, uh, and so when you uh, enter the body of Christ, and I enter the body of Christ, that affects our relationship with each other. Uh, I mean, if God is your father and God is my father, then we're brothers. Mm-hmm. And that has radical implications for my conduct toward you, mm-hmm. my responsibility for you, and mm-hmm. so on. And particularly so in each local expression mm-hmm. of that body mm-hmm. um, in terms of the local church. Uh, and so... Uh, we have to be careful in our because our society, our Western society is is hyper individualistic. It's very much that way, mm-hmm. um, and, and 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 again, it's the problem. We come to look at freedom; it's my rights and and that sort of thing. Uh, because of that, um, we ta- we can r- reduce Christianity to a personal relationship that I have with Jesus. And completely forget about what the Bible says that I've been joined into a body or into a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why there's no salvation outside of the church. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, um, you know, a, a building on a street corner or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that if you are, if you do not, you are meant to walk your Christian life out. Mm-hmm in relationship, in lived relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. uh, as the expression of his body. And to the extent that we do that, our lives will be blessed mm-hmm. and we will achieve more of what God wanted for our lives. To the extent we don't do it, we will lose track of the, of the, hand, of the purposes of God mm-hmm. for our life and we'll wind up in a bad place mm-hmm. so that very frequently people who disappear from commitment to the local church, uh, any local church, uh, wind up very distant from God and in all sorts of trouble. And I've been in Christian leadership ministry long enough to see that happen with enormous grief in my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's always hope for people as long as they hang around church and and stay connected uh, because the life of Christ um, operates within his body. The spirit yes. of God operates within the body yes. and the love of God operates within the body. Um, and to think that you can do it in your own is like, you know, uh, okay. Like saying, like, for instance, we have eight children and now six of them are married and there's grandchildren. So there's quite a group of us. Well, that's an advantage for any of our children or grandchildren, you know, they may not see or talk to each other all the time, but they're part of the family where, you know, we, we left some medication for our daughter 
with our son and daughter-in-law because they live oh, not all that far. And we know that our son and daughter-in-law will look after her and make sure that gets to her. You know, that's just part of being in the family. If they have to put, they're happy to put themselves out to help her out or whatever, she's happy to go and babysit for them. Uh, you know, it's being part of the family. When you take yourself out of family and you're very alone, that's an awful place to be, mm-hmm. even in the natural, but how much more so in the family of God. The wonderful thing is the Bible says God puts the lonely in families in the Psalms. And even people that have been rejected by their own family or don't have any family left, when they come into the family of God, they're in family now and they're blessed. And so I think those are really profound truths that we have to adjust our thinking to what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Yeah, you mentioned um, no salvation outside of the church, which is, uh, I, I can't remember how the Latin phrase goes. Um, but it's well, a phrase it's probably I... nola salvatio extra ecclesia. At least yeah. that's what it is in Latin. <laughs> yeah, and there's a technical word for it. Well, there's it's, it's one of those phrases that I think uh, Protestants. Salus, sorry, and may, maybe a different word, salus. In which case, it's salute. But I can't. You know, my Latin's a little rusty. I think I think that one's right. Yeah. And it's one of those phrases where Protestants, I think, might find really difficult because they wouldn't like the idea of our salvation being dependent upon our connection to the church. But that really does reflect uh, our our individualistic thinking as it regards salvation. Like my my mind has been really expanded around this this subject, especially as these guys break down what is salvation because. Often the message that we imbibe, whether it's given to us intentionally or not, is that salvation is like a a gift that is external to Christ that he hands to us. And so we think of salvation typically in terms of our forensic justification. So we've been declared righteous. We've been forgiven of our sin. And that's a, that's a gift that God gives us in Christ. Um, And so when that's the message that we imbibe, it kind of makes sense that we think of salvation as something that's individualistic because God just gives that gift to everybody who believes in Jesus. And we all have this little gift called our salvation that, that exists for us. But if in fact, salvation is something much deeper than that, it certainly includes forensic justification, but that's not the starting point. That's not the foundation. The foundation is our union with Christ, which is what they're contending for in this book, that in the incarnation, God joined himself to us so that we could be joined to him. And it's in that joining, it's in that union, by being in Christ, as Paul would say, that all of God's saving benefits are given to us. Um, And when that is your understanding of salvation, well, now it's not these gifts that God hands us all individually. Now it's salvation is in Christ. And if the church is the body of Christ, well, then, of course, there is no salvation outside of the church, because to be in Christ is to be in his body. Nola salus extra ecclesiam. Yeah, that's the one. I'll get it right in the end. You nailed it. But yeah, our, our, what they're saying is it's not just our personal salvation as if it's an individual transaction with God which of course it is a transaction of myself and God. And 
you know, I am justified by faith and not by works and so on. And that's all true. But the bigger picture is that, and Paul uses this phrase, in Christ over 30 times to describe the state of being saved. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not talking about being a Christian because the terminology was, wasn't really that, that, you know, was only beginning to be developed in terms of being a Christian, but he's talking about being in Christ mm-hmm. as the fundamental description of salvation. I am in Christ. Mm-hmm. How did I get in Christ by my justification by faith? Where am I, though? I'm in Christ. That's the fundamental reality. And if I'm in Christ, and uh, so, so these guys would they would they would they would negate that based upon what I've read in uh, in One with Christ, which the co-author writes, and I think I have this right. But they would say that you are not in Christ because you were justified by faith. They would say that Christ is the justified one that he is the one that God vindicated in his resurrection. And by being in Christ, you are justified. It's not your justification that gets you into Christ. It's by being in Christ that makes you justified, sanctified, adopted, glorified. All of God's saving benefits to you are in that foundational reality of, yes, of question, union with Christ. How do you be in Christ? By faith. You are joined to Christ by faith. Right. That is, that is our justification. Uh, it, so it justification is a benefit of being joined to Christ by faith is what they would say. And I, I ha- have I to say that I, I find it very compelling. Being justified from the by faith part. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, maybe splitting. Well, the they would say it like this, right? It's not, it's not your faith that justifies you. It's Christ so, who justifies you. Yes. Your, your, your faith does not have any meritorious virtue in and of no, itself it, it, salvation is a gift which must be received by faith true uh so god chose us before the foundation of the world uh but um he included us in christ uh but um that is something that still involves an exercise of faith in our part uh so i mean yes christ is the justified one because Christ fulfilled the law mm-hmm. where none of us did. Mm-hmm. And that then becomes the doorway for us. But we have to accept the finished work of Christ in, in Christ. Yes. So it's really important that that aspect of individual receiving of Christ by faith is retained. Yes. And, and they retain that 100%. Right. And, all, but, all they're saying but, is that when you make the justification the foundation, what ends up happening is you you uh, yeah, you can you get down this road of well my salvation is just my individual experience, right? Because what the, what they're they're coming from a reform perspective, and what they're saying is that our salvation originated in the decision of God, mm-hmm. not in our own decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ultimately, God chose us. He predestined us mm-hmm. he chose us before the foundation of the world uh to be conformed to the image of his son he just he called us he justified us he glorified us all mm-hmm. that is the work of god mm-hmm. it's just that that still has to be received by faith in our part yes and they, they wouldn't argue with that at all they would just say that the faith itself 
is not what does the saving. It's what joins us to Jesus, well, who is the one that does the saving. God does the saving. Yes. Yeah. God, it's uh, God It does the saving, but what he's done must be received by us. And one of the we, scriptures that they point to so frequently is 1 Corinthians one thirty, where it says it's because of him, that is the Father, right. that you are in Christ Jesus. So it's because of God that you are in Christ right. Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness— that seems Thank to be our justification, our holiness. That seems to be our sanctification mm -hmm. and ultimately our, our redemption. So in Christ, we have righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so they're saying you, it, they're really kind of messing with, uh, uh, the order salutis, the, the order of salvation in that it can be helpful to think about those things logically in order, but ultimately all of God's saving benefits are given uh, in a unitary form in the person of Jesus Christ. They're trying to point our attention back to everything comes from God in Christ. Um, and I think the reason that I understand, you know, the reason I'm sympathetic to their emphasis is that we live, as I said a few minutes ago, in a highly individualistic society where the decision, it's all about our decision. And, uh, in the process of emphasizing our decision, um, we can forget the fact that it was God that orchestrated this whole thing before the foundation of the world, and he's sovereign, and if it wasn't for God, it's like it's the same thing as free will. It's like, well, I, 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 the most basic fact of my Christian existence is that I have free will. That's hyper-Arminianism. But, but actually, I only have free will because I'm created in the image of God, who has mm -hmm. free will which is mm. to say, I only have free will because he gave it to me, which is to say, I have free will, but God has more free will than I have. <laughs> and so uh, they're, they're, just, they're just messing around. With, they're not messing around with this. They're, they're trying to, to put the emphasis back, you know, in a hyper- On grace. In a hyper-individualistic society, mm -hmm. they're trying to put the emphasis back on the grace of God, which is our only hope. And well, it, to me, it really does make the gospel more beautiful. If in well, Christ, go ahead. Yeah, and and it's the same reason they're emphasizing the body of Christ and the church, and that's where mm -hmm. salvation is, because it's counteracting our hyper-individualism. Because mm -hmm. actually, there are a lot of Christians around that don't see the need to be part of a local church. Mm -hmm. um, and they fundamentally misunderstood the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And I would say that they're saying more than, hey, we just want to help you think about this a little differently so that you stop being so individualistic. I would say that they are saying there is no salvation outside of the church because you cannot talk about soteriology without talking about e ecclesiology. Right. And, and uh, the, 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 the sort of caveat or the asterisk that I put beside that is that it is possible for someone to be genuinely saved and alienated from the local church. But salvation isn't just fire insurance. Salvation is the realm of shalom, the realm of God's wholeness and healing. And if you exist outside the realm of the local church as a Christian, your Christian existence will be stunted. Mm -hmm. you, know, you will not flourish. You will not thrive. It will be it a shadow of what you could have been. In a certain respect, are you are you uh, 
existing more, and I'm, you know, I'm going to use these terms really loosely and probably wrongly. So just clean this up. But are you existing more in the in the realm of Satan's domain than you are in God's domain? You know, I'm thinking of First Corinthians chapter five, where Paul is handing the sinner over to uh, the destruction of their flesh by kicking them out of the church. Right. No, it's it's true. I mean, you're you're trying to uh, you've removed yourself from the safety and security of the family of God in a in a, a hostile and fallen world. We all have to live in a hostile, fallen world. Mm-hmm. But the the body of Christ and and the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us strength and protection in measure against what we suffer in the world. But if you're outside of the church, um, and and by that I mean the expre- concrete expression of Christ in His local body, you're in trouble. And it's like I said to a guy once, you know, and he lived in a fairly large-sized urban area, and he said, "Well, I just haven't found a church that suits me." And I said, "Well, all the hundreds of churches in mm-hmm. this area, if you can't find one that suits you." Guess what? The problem is you're the problem. <laughs> you're the problem. You, you didn't like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, that just says that you don't really have the revelation of what it means to be saved. Well, you don't know what it is to be in Christ. I'm not, and I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm just saying right. you don't know what it means to be saved. Because if you did, then mm-hmm. amongst your hundreds of options, you would put in the effort to find one that you do connect right. with. Yeah. And uh, yeah. No, absolutely. This is no getting around it. And and to me, this is not heavy and burdensome. This is grace. Like if all of God's benefits to me are in Christ Jesus, then uh, that means that my growth as a Christian it isn't some uh, – it's not like I began by by faith and now it's, it's the Galatian problem. When I don't understand what salvation really is, then I get into the Galatian problem where I begin by faith and I finish by the flesh. And now it's all up to me. And my mentality about that could be, you know, a hundred different things. Maybe I think I've, you know, this is what I owe God by uh, by by living the most holy life I possibly can because He's declared me righteous. But when you go, actually, no, all of this is in Christ. Christ is our sanctification. First Corinthians one thirty. Then I go, well, Christ is the one who's sanctifying me. He's making me holy because He's the sanctified one. He's the one who came and lived with perfect flesh. He 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 perfected what it is to be human. He lived perfectly and he is my sanctification. And by the spirit, he is making me holy. How is he doing it? Well, there's a few different ways for sure. One of those ways is absolutely by being connected to his body. He is using his body, which he fills as, as the, the means by which he is, he is making me holy. And so now I go from striving to receiving the grace of God. Yeah. And you know, our discussion is a good example of that because we're, I mean, even though we live in different places, our lives have connected and I've been privileged to, you know, taste some of the life of your church, C3LA. That's my advertisement for you. As they have been privileged to taste of the life of your ministry. And uh, so you and I talking together produce far more, uh, however productive we are, we're far more productive talking together than if you were just talking on your own. And I was talking my own doing this together, you know, is far more productive because it's what you want to call it iron sharpens iron or whatever. But that's a little picture of the body of Christ that 
what we can accomplish working together, I've seen some extraordinary things that God's people have been able to do working together. And, uh, you know, I always say if you find the perfect church, you'll ruin it the minute you walk in the door. So, <laughs> you know, you got to hold your nose. Are there imperfect people? Are there things that you don't agree with? Well, of course, there's always going to be something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe God wants to adjust you. Maybe it's not you that have everything right, and they are the ones that are kind of annoyingly ignorant. Mm-hmm. Maybe God is putting you in a church to adjust your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, um, I just I feel it's just a critical area, and it's why it's so important for us to value the body of Christ in a day when there's a lot of cynicism. You know, cynicism is the worst enemy of the work of God when it gets into the church, because false teaching at least is identifiable we can put our finger on it like that guy you know who who whom you quoted we can put our finger on it and identify it but cynicism is a corrosion it's like people within who their attitude is wrong and uh they're believing the worst you know and they are disillusioned and they're living in their disillusionment and it's just destructive and 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 all of us can be like that. We just have to guard against it. We, mm-hmm. we, we really do. Mm-hmm. And ask for the Spirit of God to fill us, to give us love. You know, you, if, if, if we sat long enough, we could pick fault with each other. But w- what good would that do? You know, it would do no good at all for the, for the work of the kingdom. It would do no good for your life or no good for my life. Instead, let's build each other up in love. Mm-hmm. And let's encourage each other. And if, if we have that kind of relationship, then we can even correct one another, and it, it can be profitable for both of us. Yes. Anyhow. We can close this little uh, bit here, and then I just want to look at one of the sacramental natures of the church, um, and then we can finish up. So this is might come across as really controversial, but um, when, they, when they talk about you know what you're saying, valuing the church— well, Christ values the church most of all in the sense that um, he calls it his body. And you know what they're putting forward here is that this is this is more than metaphor. Um, it, it's not just talking about the social dynamic between Christ and his church. They're saying this is a this is an ontological reality, just as Christ is ontologically real. And, and then they have this John Calvin quote, which you know, would probably shock people that this is John Calvin. So Calvin said, this is the highest honor of the church that until he, Jesus is united to us, the son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are along with him, does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete? That's a stunning statement that Jesus would regard himself as incomplete until all those who belong to him have come into his body. Mm. I just think that that is it is beautiful, beautiful humble. We forget that Calvin was an apostolic church planter and pastor before he was a theologian, and that reflects mm. pastor's heart. I didn't know that. Oh, he planted churches all over France, some of which were quite large. I don't want to yeah, I'm not a church historian, but uh, he had massive impact. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know. 
Let's see. close with this. So they go on to talk about the sacraments, and I want to talk about one of the sacraments that's not actually a sacrament. But their whole their whole point here is that Christ is present in with the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. Uh, in in baptism, there is an actual joining to Jesus that happens. But I want to talk about uh, Christ and the present and His presence in the preached word. Um, so the kind of the definition of sacrament they're working off of is is Augustine's definition, where it's a visible sign of an invisible reality, which I've repeated often lately to our church, and I think it's really helpful for them in understanding the sacraments. Then they apply that to something like preaching. They say the reformers, without calling preaching a sacrament believed that preaching is a deeply sacramental act in which we encounter the living Christ and receive him through faith. In the words of Luther, to preach the gospel is nothing else than Christ's coming to us or bringing us to him. And here's just the simple thought, and I'm all done, is this this notion that if Christ is not present in the preaching of the word or the preaching of the gospel, more specifically, how else is a person saved? That is a stunning thought. If Christ is the one who saves, and this goes back to you know the, the, whether or not we think our, our our faith is in our faith versus our faith being in the Son of God to save, but Christ has to he has to be present as the word is preached because he's the one who does the saving. Otherwise, we're just hearing a message you know, rationally understanding it and then saying, I believe that. But that's not salvation. Salvation is not just the intellectual assent to to certain truths. It is that. But it's more than that in the sense that, again, foundationally, it's being joined to Jesus. And that's why they're saying the Reformers believe preaching to be such sacramental, a visible sign of the invisible reality. And, that, and that's why Calvin, went in his commentary in Second Corinthians chapter 3, um, said without a revelation of the Holy Spirit, no one can uh, understand the gospel, um, it, which is to say that Christ by his spirit is present in the preaching of the gospel because all of us have a blindness. Uh, you, you know, I remember when I first heard and really began, you know, I, I it's, it's a funny thing. I look back, at a message that was preached by the minister of our church when I was growing up, and I didn't really pay much attention. It was kind of bored and dropped out half the time. Uh, <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit began to work in me and open. Uh, all of a sudden, I understood what the gospel was. And then mm -hmm. I uh, encountered the text of an old message that he'd given, uh, our former minister who was by then uh, had died, uh, the text of a message he'd given, which I must have heard, and it was all there. It was all mm -hmm. there. Uh, but I didn't, it didn't make any impact on me at all because the Holy Spirit wasn't working in my heart. So it's an extraordinary, mysterious thing. But when God, you know, how many times have we, like when I had a power encounter with the Holy Spirit about a year after I became a Christian, and I had read the book of Acts numerous times, so I was reading the Bible, like, I mean, just a lot. And uh, I'd read through the book of Acts all these different times. But when I had this powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, it just 
I thought, oh my goodness, I've never seen that before. You know, that was the Holy Spirit moving in my heart. And so when, when the gospel comes, um, Christ shows up. And, uh, you know, otherwise it's just, it's just us giving a presentation mm-hmm. of a religious point of view. But mm-hmm. we believe that when we present the gospel, it is not just giving a presentation about a religious point of view. Mm-hmm. It, is the pre- it brings the presence and the power of God in to set people free. The truth will set you free. Yeah, and that is, you know, I think to, to kind of give some scriptural basis for that. Because Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth of my message will set you free because I am the truth. I'm present in the proclamation of my word. Well, geez, that's certainly it without a doubt. And then I was even going to go to um, Jesus's prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer, where he he's, uh, says, I don't just pray for them, but I pray for all those who will believe in me through their word. So, so there's that that same idea, right? It's like through the apostolic preaching of of the word of Christ, that salvation is going to come to others. And th- again, that has to be more than just here's a truth statement. Believe this. It, it is nothing less than another branch abiding in the vine, because the because the the gardener was present <laughs> mm-hmm. to to pick that branch up and put him in the vine. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. I, I just love it. I really have enjoyed this book. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sad to be wrapping it up next week with you, but we'll move on to something different, you know, more, more ideas to discuss. Um, but can't encourage people enough to, to pick this book up, give it a read. Um, and also uh, the predecessor to it, One with Christ, is, is a wonderful read as well about um, union with Christ and what that has to say about our salvation. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today. And uh, hey, just... One more reminder, if you are a church leader or a pastor, uh, just take out your phone right now and text the word good to 39383, and you can check out Dwell Bible, some of the great stuff that they're doing, and can help your church engage with God's word. Every pastor I talk to over the last few few years has come to the conclusion that we need to be better at discipling our people. Well, we don't want to disciple them just with good ideas. We want to disciple them with scripture. And so Dwell wants to help you with that. So get connected. Good. 39383. Thank you to everybody for listening. We love you. Thanks for journeying with us here at Good Theology. And we will see you next week. God bless.